Well, we finish our study of the book of James today. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Our text is the last two verses of James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Lord, help us now to give our hearts and minds to your word, your sure and trustworthy word, your word that is our refuge and our light shining in a dark place. Amen. Well, James has written this letter to dispersed Christians, mainly Jewish Christians. This letter was written early on in church history. In fact, I believe that when you hold the, the letter of James, you are holding the first Christian literature. Now, in our Bibles, it's toward the back of the New Testament, but I believe that in terms of chronology, this was the first Christian writing. There would be many more following right on its, on its heels, but this is the first one, I believe. And so many of the believers are Jewish, and James is writing to confront and warn against divisions in ourselves, spiritual fractures. Now, when I say divisions, I don't mean divisions within the church. He does talk about that as well. But I mean divisions within ourselves, these cracks, these inconsistencies, hypocrisies. James's word, his own word for this, is double-minded or two-souled, double-souled. He uses the word two times in the letter, but that concept, that reality of this double-mindedness is woven throughout the entire letter. He begins by presenting trials as God's way of refining our faith, making us whole, getting rid of those cracks those divisions within ourselves, these, this double-mindedness, and therefore we should, we should greet trials with joy, not because of the trials themselves, but because the trials are being used to refine our faith, to purify it, to make us whole. And so he contrasts then undivided responses to God's bringing of trials, how we ought to respond with whole hearts, trusting him. He contrasts that kind of response with double-minded responses, questioning God, doubting God, sitting in judgment on God's integrity. And throughout this first chapter, he exalts God's integrity. He puts it in the spotlight. In fact, in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1, James makes this very compact theological statement about God's nature. He is the father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. There are no inclusions. There are no divisions in the character of God. He is always 
perfect, whole. He is always consistent. There are no fractures in him. He then gives four examples of spiritually fractured living, double-minded living. And these four examples expose the absurdity of living in a double-minded way. Hearing the word, but not doing the word, but deceiving ourselves into thinking that because we hear the word, that means we are right before God and we are doing everything we can to please him because we hear the word. James says that's double-mindedness, to hear the word but not do it. He then talks about our claim to love others, to be consistent with the law of God, but we show partiality. We discriminate against others in the body. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We can't show partiality while claiming to love people and to be consistent with God's standard. Then he goes on to talk about faith, the claim of having faith. But having faith without works, can that faith save someone? And he contrasts two kinds of faith. There is a faith that works, that's active. That's the kind of faith that makes somebody right with God. The kind of faith that has no works is a false kind of faith. It is a dead faith. That kind of faith ends up in judgment. Then his last example of, of double-minded living Regards the tongue in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James points out that we bless God and yet we curse people with the same tongue. How can this be, my brothers? Can a, can a freshwater spring issue forth also salt water or salt water spring issue forth fresh water? No, it's impossible. It's absurd. So in warning about the dangers of the tongue, he shows this double-mindedness, that our, our spiritual fractures come out of our mouths like a forked tongue. He then continues by contrasting two kinds of wisdom, an earthly wisdom that is characterized by malice, selfish motives, agendas. He contrasts that kind of wisdom and he calls it an earthly wisdom with a heavenly wisdom, a wisdom from above. That kind of wisdom makes peace, is reasonable. So as he proceeds then from that, he, he confronts our anger and our conflict. He confronts this, this desire because of what's in our hearts that we march out and we try to get what we want. And that is the source of all conflict, not getting something we think we want or deserve. He says that this is idolatry, you adulterous people. And it amounts to friendship with the world, which James says you can't be friends with the world and be friends with God. You can't have a divided or a double allegiance, just like you can't be double-minded. That's absurd. And so the heart of the letter then is James's call to us for a radical repentance, 
to humble ourselves before God, to draw near to God, to be cleansed from sin. Then he works his way down from this peak with warnings against pride and then an encouragement to suffer with patience. And he propels us to be a people of prayer. Prayer should define the community that belongs to Jesus Christ and that is enduring suffering. And now he ends the letter somewhat abruptly by admonishing us to pursue and rescue those who wander from the truth. As one New Testament scholar puts it, the last words of a sometimes harsh and confrontational letter become a reminder to its readers about the hope of forgiveness, restoration, and reconciliation. That's right. Ever know someone who has left the path? Ever know someone who has walked away from the faith? If you've been a Christian very long at all, if you've been in the church very long at all, you have, and so have I. And it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's heartbreaking. Sometimes it's deliberate and conscious. The person knows consciously what they're doing. They make a decision. They come to a conclusion that Christianity isn't all that they thought it was. They're really not a believer. That Christianity doesn't hold up in their mind by their analysis. Or the lure of the world is just too much. Other times it happens without someone really being aware of it or, or deliberately choosing it. They just fall into temptation. They're the, the proverbial dog squirrel and they just look and whatever's shiny and blingy, they chase it. They are easily susceptible to temptation. So sometimes they're even unaware that they've strayed, that they've wandered. While it is a painful thing to do, going after a person to rescue them from sin and from error is a necessary part of being God's people. That's part of being the church. When you become a Christian, you sign up for this. Now, sometimes the New Testament presents this, these relationships within the church as preventative. Let me give you some examples. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another. This is something that's to be ongoing in the life of the church. And that command is not given to elders or pastors. That's to the whole body, teaching and admonishing one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, encourage one another, build each other up, instill courage into each other. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews here isn't talking about a response to sin or someone who's wandered. He's just saying it should be ongoing life in the church among the people of God to stir each other up. Say, come on, let's go. We have a mission. We've been saved. We've been forgiven. 
And yeah, we're going to stumble, but stir one another up to love and good works. In other words, we keep each other from going backward spiritually by propelling one another forward spiritually. That's what I mean by preventative. Because you can't really prevent someone from sinning. You can't really prevent it, keep them. So, but we, we propel each other forward. But at other times, the New Testament presents this involvement in one another's lives as responsive. As responsive. Let me give you some examples of this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Again, this is not to the elders of the church, or to the pastoral staff. This is to the entire church. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This word idle, by the way, means out of line. This is someone who has left the path. This is someone who has broken ranks. It's a military term. Admonish them. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It's another example. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restore. Someone who's caught in a transgression. This is like not, they've been caught, discovered. It means caught like a trap. Their foot is caught in a trap. Their soul is caught in a trap. They are caught in a sin. Restore that person. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, this was a situation of church discipline. This is when a person has been warned. They, they've been confronted about sin, immorality, and are flagrantly continuing in that kind of lifestyle, purge or, or rebuke and, and put out of yourselves that person. But all of these are instructions for after the line has been crossed. These are all, these are all instructions that are to respond to spiritual and moral failure. So both in preventing, propelling each other forward, and in responding to sin, the Christian community as a whole has responsibility to mutually pursue one another. We're to go after each other. And I think what James has in mind is what I'm calling this responsive here in James chapter 5. It's someone who has wandered. It's going after someone who has strayed and rescuing them. And let me tell you, I think this is a difficult thing for churches to do well because the tendency is to go to extremes. And I've witnessed both extremes in churches. First of all, there is what I call the wimpy church. The wimpy church. This is a church that's uncomfortable talking about sin uncomfortable confronting another person. They take the position of, well, it's not my place to judge. It's not my responsibility to correct people. That's between them and God. I don't want to step on anyone's toes. That's both from the pulpit with leadership 
and then that kind of culture trickles down into the church. They're unwilling to go to a brother or sister and say, hey, I'm sorry, that's not right. The way you're living, you can't be living that way and claiming to be a Christian. And what really happens is instead of going to the person in trouble, they end up talking to other people about that person. And what ought to be loving confrontation becomes gossip, becomes undermining. Ultimately, it leads to spiritual casualties as people stray from the path and morally self-destruct, and nobody says anything because we don't want to be judgmental. On the other end, though, to the other extreme is the overzealous church. This is a church of people convinced it is their God-given role to ferret out sin wherever it may lurk. Now, that may sound extreme, but I've, I've witnessed churches go through this and be this way. This is a different kind of church culture. It's a church culture that says everybody is the spiritual police and called to be suspicious about everybody else. And there's a constant, I'm, I need to confront you. You walk down the hall to the bathroom on a Sunday morning, say, how are you? Fine. Are you sure you're fine? I don't think you're fine. I think, I think you're living in sin. It's that kind of a culture, right? It leads to legalism. It leads to authoritarianism. It leads to suspicion. And you ultimately end up with damaged people who have a distorted view of confrontation and restoration. Neither extreme is healthy. And both lead to spiritual casualties. But there is a right and healthy middle ground here. And that is lovingly, patiently, humbly responding to those who wander from the truth into ways of error by pursuing them, voicing our concerns, going to the Bible, not to club somebody, but to warn and to redeem, to heal and point to God's word as the standard. Not our own opinions, not our own structures of righteousness, but what God has said. James closes his letter with a call to rescue the wanderer, to go after the person. And he outlines three parts to this rescue mission. Three parts to this rescue mission. First, there is a crisis. There is a crisis. Verse 19. And the crisis is, someone will wander. It's inevitable. Somebody is going to wander from the path. If anyone among you wanders from the truth. James, we've talked about this last time. James is still here concerned about community living. And there will be those in the church that will wander from the truth. This anyone is someone who apparently, it would seem, has worshipped with the church community. Someone who has served alongside others within the church. This is someone who has been involved in the nursery. This is someone who's been involved in community groups. But they wander. They stray. This word wander is a very general word used to describe leaving a path. And James may have in mind here the wandering from the flock. Only instead of the flock, 
this person wanders from the truth, the truth. In other words, God's standard for faith and God's standard for life. That's the path. Wandering from the truth then includes both wandering from a right teaching, falling into error, believing things that are not true, or failing to trust in the things that God has said are true, and as well pursuing a sinful lifestyle. So wandering from the truth may be rejecting the deity of Christ, denying the authority of Scripture, believing that God is still in a process of learning something other than the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent God that he reveals himself to be. But it also may be pursuing drunkenness, sexual immorality, jealousy, bitterness, other things that James has, has described here in his letter. As a matter of fact, given all the things that James has said throughout the letter of James, wandering from the truth would have to include behavior. And this is confirmed by James identifying this wanderer as a sinner in verse 20. He's not just talking about someone who sins in general. He's talking about someone who is committing specific sin and wandering from the truth in committing that sin, living that way. But whether it's doctrinal, whether it's lifestyle, this person is part of the church, one among the community of faith. This person has wandered. They have left the path of truth for that which is false. These are treacherous paths that lead to ruin, false paths. Paths that promise life, that promise happiness, that promise fulfillment, but cannot and will not deliver ever. They are an illusion. How should others in the church respond? Let them go? Well, you know, everyone's got to figure it out for themselves. We don't want to judge. No, it may be the more difficult path, but the right response is to pursue the wanderer and bring them back. This is the response. So the crisis is someone will wander. It's also inevitable. Someone will wander from the path. And the right response then to rescue somebody is to bring them back. Bring them back. Literally, the word is turn or return. So to turn somebody. A shepherd turns a sheep away from dangerous cliffs back to the straight path, back to the safe path. A parent or a caregiver turns a child from hot stoves or busy streets. The Bible uses the word from, for turning from sin to God. Again, a couple examples. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Same word. You turned. You repented. It's, it's a synonym for repentance. It's turning from that and turning to God. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. This is Peter preaching Pentecost. The southern steps of the temple. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Same word. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. 
turn or return. So we call on those who don't know God to turn to him for forgiveness. And if one of us wanders from the truth, we call on that person to turn back to the truth, to turn back to the one who forgives. To turn someone then is to redirect their lives. It's course correction, whether that's belief or whether that's behavior or both, usually. It is a rescue operation. Now, who does this bringing back? The elders? The full-time pastors? Trained professionals? Some other trained professionals? Someone. If someone brings him back, you are the someone. I'm the someone too. I'm included. But we all are the someones. This is to everybody. The church any and every member of the community of faith is the someone who goes after the anyone who has wandered. This is a call to all the members of the community to mutually pursue each other, to hold each other to the truth, to keep each other on the path. Now, sadly, this doesn't mean that the wanderer will necessarily respond. The wanderer does not always respond by coming back, by turning. We all know there are cases where that just doesn't happen. And James doesn't say that this is a guaranteed result. He doesn't say, if you go and pursue, you will end up rescuing the person. But he says, if the wanderer does respond... If you go back and if someone goes after that person and brings them back, turns them away from the cliff, turns them away from this path, this pursuit that is wandering from the truth, then there is fruit. And the fruit is great because the fruit is life. This is the third part of this rescue mission. The fruit of rescuing somebody. And that is life. Look at verse 20. Let him know, if if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know. This is the rescuer. This is the person who has gone out after the wanderer. This is the someone who pursues the wanderer to bring that wanderer back. James is less warning the wanderer in these verses. He is less warning the wanderer than he is motivating the rest of us to pursue each other. He's saying begin the rescue mission with the knowledge of what's at stake, what's gained if you're successful. And by the way, this role of wanderer and rescuer will sometimes be reversed, won't it? Since we're all susceptible to wandering, the person who is the wanderer in this week or this month or this year might be the rescuer the next month or the next year. Praise God if so, because that means that wanderer has returned and now is in a position to go and help somebody else, go rescue someone else who's wandered from the path. 
But let him know, let the person who's gone out to rescue somebody, let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will, what? What's the fruit? What's the result of this? Well, for one thing, save his soul from death. Save his soul from death. James might be giving another reference here to the wandering sheep who instead of staying on the path of safety, wanders off, falls into a, a pit, breaks a leg, and will certainly die from a lack of water or starvation or become even an easier meal for a predator. But this death that James mentions here, save his soul from death, this is spiritual death. It is the result of ultimate judgment. This is consistent with the way James has talked about judgment and death throughout his letter. This path that the wanderer has taken leads to death as its ultimate destination. They aren't just in danger of ruining relationships. This person who wanders from the truth is not just in the danger of messing up their lives. They're in danger of eternity, an eternity of judgment, of death. What's at stake for the wanderer is his or her soul. See, the, the rescuer saves his soul from death, saves the wanderer's soul from death. Soul, his very self. This was a word for the whole person. It's a word from which we get psyche. But here's the thing. This is also the word that James uses in the word double-minded, two-souled, double-souled. Now, as much as James has talked about being double-minded, being two-souled, to hear at the end of the letter talk about saving someone's soul from death, he is saying that, that this double-mindedness is behind, what he's implying is that's behind the wandering from the truth. And that this double-mindedness leads us to stray and the rescuer saves that soul from its own fractured way of life when it has wandered from the path. We have a part to play in the Making one another whole. James says that by going and if you can turn somebody, if you can win them back, if you can get them to come back, you are saving that person's soul. Bringing back the wanderer will also cover a multitude of sins, which is another way of saying that all of the variety of sins all of the violations, all of the offenses that are involved in wandering from the truth will be forgiven. They'll be forgiven. This covering is talking about forgiveness, which is how the person is saved from death, how the soul is saved from death, because the multitude of sins is covered. Now, this brings us to a question, and you are probably thinking it to some degree or another as I say all of these things. Is this wanderer a Christian? 
Are we to see this person who wanders from the truth as a believer? Because if so, then how can someone who is a Christian be in danger of death and judgment? Because if we are justified, if we are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Right? Romans 8, verse 1. For anyone who's in Christ, there is now, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If that's true, and someone is in Christ and wanders from the truth, because we all can stumble... How can we then talk about the possibility that they would end up with judgment and death? Not physical death, but dying, eternal death. How could we say that? We understand the Bible to teach that we are saved by grace. We don't earn our salvation. We can't do enough good things to to merit salvation. And we know that once we are Christians... We now don't maintain our relationship with God because we are perfect. We still sin. We are still in the process of being transformed, being made in the likeness of Christ. Now, if that's true and we wander from the truth, how could we be in danger of, the, of death and judgment? How could that be? Well, it is because we also understand the Bible to teach and therefore teach perseverance. That there is an aspect of our salvation by which we are to persevere. We must persevere in the faith. So even though God is sovereign and God saves and it is God's grace and there's nothing that we can do to merit it, the Bible clearly teaches that we have to finish the race. Now, this is what I often call, and for those of you who call Crossway Home, you've heard me say it many, many times, that the Bible often talks from two different perspectives. One is behind the veil. One is revealing what's going on in the mind of God and what God is doing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. That's behind the veil. We would have no concept of that if that weren't revealed to us. Sometimes the Bible speaks from the street level, what we experience and what we can see and observe and evaluate. This is how James is talking here. This is his perspective. It's from our perspective of perseverance. And you see, the wanderer may be a true believer who is stumbling, who has just been led astray. Or the wanderer might be an unbeliever who has been self-deceived, who has been in the church, who has worked in the nursery, who's been in community groups, who's grown up in the church and heard the gospel all of their lives. And now they're wandering. But the responsibility for the church is the same. The response is the same. Go after them and turn them back to the truth. That might be conversion for somebody. When you go after the wonder, they, as well as you, might discover that they never knew Christ, that they were never a believer in truth. And now maybe they'll hear the gospel with new eyes and recognize, I grew up in church. 
But I, don't, I never gave my life to Christ. I never submitted my life to his lordship. I never took up my cross and followed him as a disciple. That's saving somebody's soul from death. It may also be that this is a, a believer who will end up continuing to grow in their faith. Yeah, I, you're right. I can't live this way. And the Lord's, hev- the Lord's hand has been heavy on me. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. You're miserable because you're living in sin and pursuing in sin. And the Holy Spirit lives in you and you're in Christ and you're living in a double-minded way. It's just like James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Who is that call of repentance to? Everybody. It's to everybody. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, if you were living in sinful ways, in a way that is friendship with the world and not friendship with God, there is only one response, and that is radical repentance. That's what James is saying here. From our perspective, from the street-level perspective, it doesn't really matter if that person's a believer or not a believer in terms of whether or not we go after them. We're to pursue them. The responsibility is the same. In fact, any notion of whether a person is a believer or not will probably be gained by their response to the rescue attempt. So let me ask you a couple of questions then. Do you know anyone who has wandered from the truth? Do you know anybody? We all have witnessed it. We've all seen it at some point. If you've been a believer for any length of time, been in the church for any length of time. But I'm asking you specifically at this point in your life, your experience, is there anyone that you know who has wandered from the truth and needs to be pursued by you? Someone you need to go call, email, text, and say, hey, can we get together? I'm concerned for you. And I just want to understand where you're at. And I want to pray for you. And then courageously and humbly trusting in God's power, the power of the gospel to convict, bringing that to bear with that person. Do you know anyone that you need to pursue? Also, I should ask, are you someone who is at the moment wandering from the truth? Are you someone who has strayed from the path? And you need to turn back into the right path. Maybe you're hearing this this morning, and even though James is primarily, I think, again, writing to the church as a whole to motivate and encourage and call us to pursue someone who's wandered from the truth, maybe you're hearing this, and the whole time you're going, I'm the one. I'm the one who's off the path. I'm the one who's wandered from the truth. Do you need to come back? Because the text itself is a pursuit of you. Or you could say that as I'm preaching, I'm pursuing you, asking you, begging you to come back to the truth. I may not be speaking to any individual in particular, but that's what this message is as well. It is an opportunity. It is a call to come back. It is a rescue sermon to turn back to God to turn from the sin 
And it may be that you're coming to grips with the fact that I don't think I've ever been a believer. I don't think I've ever really been a Christian. I've checked off a lot of boxes. I've jumped through a lot of hoops. I've made a lot of people think that I belong among the people of God. And in fact, I've assumed that I belonged among the people of God. But when I really look at my life, the Lord is shining a light in there. And I need to be saved. I need to give my life to Christ. There may be others of you who hear that and you go, I I know the commitment I made. And I know that God's hand is on me and I belong to him. And I have this heart that's just hard right now. It's just hard. And I need to come back. I need to repent. It's the same message. It's the same call. God loves you. And he has provided everything that is needed for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, for your restoration. In the end, it is he who rescues It is he who rescues, and he will cover a multitude of sin.